Hey, GCC family, hope you guys are doing well today. Thank you for joining us here online. And just like I've been saying over the course of the last few weeks, please, uh, if we haven't had an opportunity to touch base with you in a while for whatever reason, we'd love to hear from you. Please feel free to reach out to us at the church office. Uh, you can find all of that contact information at gcclw.org. We look forward to hearing from you. Well, let's get started today with a word of prayer. Father God, thank you that you're you. We praise you. We lift your name on high. You are good and glorious. Lord, I pray that you would uh, continue to draw us closer to you. Lord, that we'd have confidence in you, that you would be our firm foundation. And that as a result, even if the world is falling apart around us, we would be able to stand firm at peace, knowing that you are our king and the world can't do anything to us. We love you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys have probably figured this out by now, but I am a bit of a nerd. <laughs> uh, currently, I am a nerd for the Bible and a nerd for board games. Taylor, Taylor and I love to play board games and also Legos. I just find them extremely relaxing. <laughs> I love building with Legos and creating. But back in the day, growing up especially, I was a nerd for engineering. I, I was passionate about all things engineering. I loved understanding why things worked, how things worked, how they designed things to work. Uh, I loved all of that stuff. Some of my favorite shows on TV were on the History Channel or the Discovery Channel, shows like How It's Made or uh, Extreme Engineering. I just loved these, understanding how humans were able to build buildings or, or put together guitars or anything like that. I just, I love that. I think some other kids my age probably would have thought, uh, this feels way too much like school, probably wouldn't have watched those same shows, but I loved them. I remember this one particular episode of Extreme Engineering. They were talking about the design of this one particular building that they were building in a place that was prone to earthquakes. It was this skyscraper and they were designing it with earthquakes in mind. And there was all kinds of interesting design features like a counterweight in the building and um, different material uses and the shape of the building so that it would you know have a cert certain like if it began to shake it wouldn't like shake itself apart but at the root of it all was the foundation they specially designed this foundation to be able to withstand even the worst that the world the, that the earth could throw at this building you know, foundations are important. We're all extravagantly aware of just how important foundations are. Uh, as Taylor and I have been searching the web, our, our little realtor app, potentially looking at, at future homes, one of the things that we've discovered is that if that home that we're looking at has foundation issues, you can count on it being 50, 60, sometimes even more, thousands of dollars, 50 or $60,000, sometimes even more, cheaper than it would be if that foundation was strong. You, you can change the value of a house by like 25 or 30% just based upon whether or not the foundation is strong or not. We're all familiar with how important foundations really are. And of course, foundations apply to more than just skyscrapers in our homes. We as humans, I believe, also have foundations, truths, beliefs, values, things that we hold on to that 
that, that anchor us when the storms of life are coming and when the world is falling apart around us. These are our firm foundations, things that we stand on to prevent us from falling apart along with the world around us. These personal foundations come in all kinds of different shapes and sizes. They can look like uh, some people place their whole trust in, in various world's religions. Some people place their whole trust in things like the scientific method. Some people place their whole trust in, in things that they can touch and feel and see and observe. Some uh, place their, their, their foundation as morality. Some say it's wisdom. Some uh, choose some kind of value like, like family or work ethic or, or even money. Some people uh, anchor themselves in friends or, or relationships with significant others. We, the, I mean, humans run the gamut. We, we all have a foundation. The, the only question is, what is that foundation made of? What, what, is, it, what is it composed of? Having a strong foundation is meaningful, even to Jesus. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about how anyone who hears these words of mine and does them is like a man who built his house on the rock. And you guys probably know the rest of the stories. The, the, the wind comes and the rain comes and beats against the house and the house stands because it has a sturdy foundation. But the person who doesn't do the words of Jesus is like a person who built their house on the sand. The rain comes, the winds blow and beat against the house and it gets destroyed as a result. All that to say, foundations are crucial. We all have them. Like I said, the only question is, what are they made of? And because they're not all of the same value, when the world begins to fall apart around us, is your foundation going to hold? As you look at your life, do you believe that you have thus a solid foundation or even do you believe that you have the solid foundation? What is your foundation currently made of? When you face the storms of life, does your foundation teeter or does it stand solid? That brings us to our reading for today. So please uh, flip with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 21. And uh, I actually am going to encourage you to just read along on the screen. Uh, I'll, I'll throw the Bible verses up on the screen. Here's the reason. We're going to be looking at 33 verses out of Luke 21, basically the entire chapter, excluding the first four verses about the widow's two coins. It's a long passage. Um, bear with me as we get through it. Uh, but it's, I believe, a really essential, pertinent teaching for the time that we're in today. And so without any further ado, Luke 21. Also, uh, we're... The, there's just no possible way to cover all 33 of these verses, so I apologize in advance. Um, if you have questions, further questions about things that you see in this passage that I don't cover, please feel free to reach out to me via email. You can find my contact information at gcclw.org. But here it is, Luke 21, beginning in verse 5. Some of his disciples began talking about the majestic stonework of the temple and the memorial decorations on the walls. But Jesus said, The time is coming when all of these things will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen? 
What sign will show us that these things are about to take place? He replied, Don't let anyone mislead you, for many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah, and saying, The time has come! But don't believe them. And when you hear of wars and insurrections, don't panic. Yes, these things must take place first, but the end won't follow immediately. Then he said, Nation will go to war against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and there will be famines and plagues in many lands. And there will be a terrifying things and great miraculous signs from heaven. But before all this occurs, there will be a time of great persecution. You will be dragged into synagogues and prisons. You will stand on trial before kings and governors because you are my followers. But this will be your opportunity to tell them about me. So don't worry in advance about how to answer the charges against you, for I will give you the right words and such wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to reply or refute you. Even those close to you, your parents, brothers, relatives, and friends will betray you. They will even kill some of you, and everyone will hate you because you are my followers. But not a hair of your head will perish. By standing firm, you will win your souls. And when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you will know that the time of its destruction has arrived. Then those in Judea must flee to the hills, those in Jerusalem must get out, and those in the country should not return to the city. For those will be the days of God's vengeance, and the, and the prophetic words of the scriptures will be fulfilled. How terrible it will be for pregnant women and for nursing mothers in those days. For there will be disaster in the land and great anger against this people. They will be killed by the sword or sent away as captives to all the nations of the world. And Jerusalem will be trampled down by the Gentiles until the period of the Gentiles has come to an end. And there will be strange signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars. And here on earth the nations will be in turmoil, perplexed by the roaring seas and strange tides. People will be terrified at what they see coming upon the earth. For the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then everyone will see the Son of Man coming on the cloud with power and great glory. So when all these things begin to happen, stand, look up, your salvation is near. Then he gave this illustration. Notice the fig tree or any other tree. When the leaves come out, you know without being told that the summer is near. In the same way, when you see all these things taking place, you can know that the kingdom of God is near. I tell you the truth. This generation will not pass from the scene until all these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will disappear, but my words will never disappear. Watch out! Don't let your hearts be dulled by carousing and drunkenness and by the worries of this life. Don't let the day catch you unaware like a trap, for that, that day will come upon everyone living on the earth. Keep alert at all times and pray that you might be strong enough to escape the coming horrors and stand before the Son of Man. Every day, Jesus went to the temple to teach, and each evening he returned to spend the night on the Mount of Olives. The crowds gathered at the temple early each morning to hear him. <laughs> there is a lot there, right? It's a massive passage. And like I said, we're just not going to be able to cover all of it. Anything that I don't cover, please feel free to shoot me an email. But the first thing that I want to talk about, and I want to get it off the table right away, because I know that it's a question that's at least probably been on the periphery of our minds, if not a, a major question plaguing many of us, which is, are we currently in the last part 
of the last days. Is Jesus coming really soon? And uh, I know that's a, a, a difficult question. And my best answer for you is, I don't know, 100%. I don't know. Uh, some people think that he's coming very soon. Some people don't think that he's coming very soon. I personally, um, I, <laughs> I personally believe that there's certain things that need to happen uh, based upon biblical prophecy that haven't yet happened. They might happen soon. They might not happen soon. I, I just don't know. I don't know when he's coming back. Jesus himself said that only the Father knows the day or the hour. We'll know the season, but only the Father knows the day or the hour. What I do know 100% is that Jesus is coming again. He will come again. And I also know with great confidence, and I know for sure, that when he does come again, we're going to know about it. If you look at verse 27, then everyone will see the Son of Man coming on a cloud with power and great glory. This is not going to be something like when he came the first time and he showed up in a barn somewhere. It's going to be big. Everybody's going to know about it. Don't be deceived by people who might raise up and say, I'm the Messiah or I'm the Messiah. They're not the Messiah. Trust me, based upon what Jesus is saying, you'll know when he shows up. These things are certain. He is coming again. When he comes, we're going to know about it. But when it comes to other parts of this passage or even other parts about the end of days and our understanding of the end of days, there are just details that we not everyone agrees on. People devote their entire lives to understanding the end of days, to understanding the original languages and the original cultures and all of that stuff. They, they devote everything to this stuff. And even those people disagree. Ultimately, I think it's wise for us as followers of Jesus. I mean, these are his words. They're in the word of God. I think it's wise for us to read them, to come to some level of understanding about them. But the cool thing about future events is that regardless of how we feel about them, regardless of our theology, what happens, happens. <laughs> like, if I have a strong opinion about how the end of days will happen and it doesn't happen that way... I mean, what happens, happens. That's the cool thing about future events. As we study these things, I think that it's wise for us to have this understanding of what is being said. But at the same time, I think it's more wise for us to focus in on the things that we can be 100% certain of. Things like Jesus is coming again. Things like we will know it when he shows up. And also on that list are things about how we should be responding to these events going on around us. Here's the thing. If we're in the last five years or 50 years or 500 years, I believe that our actions ought to be the same no matter what. As you look over Jesus's teachings and the teachings of other New Testament writers across the entire New Testament, what emerges is this pattern and they highlight two things a lot. The first thing that they highlight is don't fear. As these things begin to happen, don't be controlled, led, or manipulated by fear. The second thing that emerges is this general teaching that we're supposed to be doing the things that Jesus commanded us to do when he shows back up. If your life 
is going to somehow significantly change when you believe that Jesus is, uh, like, his return is getting close, I believe, scripturally speaking, you have a problem. We're supposed to be living every day as if Jesus could show up that day. So if you're suddenly going to become more moral or more evangelistic or more this or more that, when you believe that Jesus' return is getting close, you're doing the wrong thing. It's important for us to understand that Jesus says he's going to come like a thief. He's going to come like a thief in the night. It's going to be a surprise. And it's good for us that he finds us doing the things that he commanded us to do. Notably, we're supposed to be preaching the gospel, loving our neighbors and caring for the poor. Peter notably says in his second letter, 2 Peter 3.11, he says, Since everything will be destroyed in this way, talking about how in the end of days everything's going to get destroyed, what kind of people are you supposed to be? He says, you ought to live holy and godly lives. Holy and godly lives. Ultimately, that's what we're going to be focusing on today. I believe that the most pertinent thing that we can draw out of this passage is how are we supposed to respond when we begin to see these end of days things happen? This passage is paralleled in the other synoptic gospels, Matthew and Mark. We call them synoptics because they're very similar. Um, and it tells about the birth pains that will lead ultimately to Jesus's second coming. However, for those of you who are up on your history, you probably know that some of the events that Jesus is speaking about in this passage actually already occurred. They were future events when Jesus spoke them, but as we look back on them today, they've already taken place. And these are mainly the events that are highlighted in verses 20 to 24, which is about the destruction of the temple, the sack of Jerusalem by Rome, which happened in 70 AD. Now you might be thinking, well, Nathan, that's kind of confusing. <laughs> and you're right, it is a little bit confusing. In, in, in this one prophecy are things that are about the end of days when Jesus is coming again, and also things that Jesus knew would be at least partially fulfilled, if not fully fulfilled, within just a, a few years of his departure and ascension. And the answer is, yeah, it's, it's a little bit confusing. But also, that this is an extremely common reality in biblical prophecy. In fact, this, this idea that there's like a mixture of things that happen in the time and things that will happen in the future, or that there's like a, a, a partial fulfillment and then a, a more complete fulfillment at a later time, is a really common reality across the pages of the scriptures. And uh, it's so common that we have, fancy, we have fancy theological language to describe it. It's called type and antitype. And the type is a symbol that God initiates that indicates or foreshadows something higher in the future, which is called the antitype. Prophecy like this is everywhere across the pages of scripture, where there's this initial fulfillment, and then later on, a more complete fulfillment. Uh, you can see this in, in the prophecies in Isaiah about Jesus. Many scholars believe that some of those prophecies about Jesus were fulfilled by someone in the day and time of Isaiah, but then were ultimately fulfilled by Jesus as the coming Messiah, the promised one who was going to save the world from our sins. 
But enough of that nerdy stuff. The point is that this mixture of, of, of fast and slow fulfillment of type and antitype, it, it shouldn't cause us to distrust the Bible. It's just a common way that the Bible, the, the, that the Bible does prophecy. Ultimately, I think that this, Bible, that this passage has a lot to offer us as we seek to understand and how we're supposed to respond to these events. And each of these things, in my mind at least, are united by this one common question. What is your foundation? I'm particularly drawn initially to verse 9. And when you hear the, of wars and insurrections, don't panic. Yes, these things must take place first, but the end will not follow immediately. I find that as we discuss the end times, we're often overtaken by fear. Uh, I remember when I was first learning about end times, maybe it was a little bit too early. I was in a Sunday school class. We had a guest speaker talking that day, and he talked about the end of days. I was like fourth or fifth grade, and I got scared. But it makes sense. Like, the things that were, are being discussed here, horrible natural disasters, um, uh, persecution, difficulty as we, as we follow Jesus, these are big changes and, 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 and can be scary because they threaten, our, they threaten our security, they threaten our way of life. It makes sense to be afraid. So why is it that Jesus says not to panic? Why is it that Jesus says not to be afraid? He answers it, I think, in just the next sentence, he says, yes, these things must take place. In other words, regardless of if we worry about them or not, they're going to happen. Uh, it's important for us to take note of the fact that worry does not change future events. Let us instead not worry and be confident. Even beyond this reality that these things just have to happen, I believe that it's pointless to, uh, I believe I know that's really strong language just have mercy on me but I believe that it's essentially pointless for the believer to worry because we know the king and that's the first response that I really want to draw out point number one don't fear because you know the king to put it bluntly what is the worst thing that could happen I think for most of us the worst thing that could happen is probably death but all that means to us as followers of Jesus is that we get to be with our king in his kingdom sooner. In uh, Philippians, Paul famously says to live is Christ and to die is gain. That means for me to live is to be here with the body of Christ and to, be, to help us continue to grow and move forward. And to die is to be with Jesus himself. To live is Christ and to die is gain. He doesn't fear death because he is firmly rooted in Jesus as his foundation, and nothing in his world matters compared to that. He, in the same book, Philippians, he says everything else in life is garbage compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord. All that to say, I don't think we need to worry because as believers, if we're firmly rooted in Christ, the worst thing that could happen is just not even really that bad. Ultimately, we don't fear because Jesus is this foundation. When our foundation is Christ, even when the world is falling apart around us, crumbling all around us, we are standing on something solid. Jesus will not move. He's the rock of ages. No need to fear. 
Look at verse 28. So when all these things begin to happen, stand, look up, for your salvation is near. Stand, look up, almost as if to say, take heart, be confident in your king. Take note of the many ways that Jesus does not say to respond when these events begin to take place. He doesn't say, when these things happen, retreat to your bunkers or run to the hills or buy all the toilet paper. He says, stand, look up, your salvation is near. Our response is to reflect the reality that our feet are on the foundation who is Christ. As we choose to stand and not fear, our response becomes a testimony to the people around us. When the world is crumbling, people are going to wonder, how in the world do you have peace? There's persecution, there's famine, there's, there's difficulty on the way. How do you have peace? And we'll be able to say, because I know the king. And because I know the king, I have no reason to fear. I'm reminded of Psalm 56, verses 3 through 4, where it says, When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise. In God I trust and am not afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Our confidence and our peace is established because of where our trust is. Because Jesus is our foundation. Because we have Jesus, death has no power. In Christian history, we hear story after story of people standing before crowds that are about to murder them and martyr them. And they're... They're praying for the crowds or, or singing worship songs. How is that even possible? That people would have that kind of peace, that people would have that kind of joy as they faced the ultimate cost. I believe it's because they're firmly planted in Jesus. Even when the world comes to an end, whatever generation of Christians are around at that point, whether that's us or our children or our grandchildren or a hundred generations from now, Christians don't need to fear. And, we res- and, and as we currently respond to the environment around us, regardless of if we're near to the end or not, there's no reason to fear. If Jesus is our Lord, we are secure. He is our unchanging foundation. But some of you might be thinking, but what about verses 20 to 24? Basically, where Jesus says, hey, when you see Jerusalem surrounded, run. Isn't running a fearful thing to do? That's an excellent observation. Here is what I think is going on. FYI, this is the section of the passage that's got that type, antitype, the the initial fulfillment and potentially a future fulfillment. Uh, Essentially, this passage, Jesus tells us to run. But in running, the, the followers of Jesus in 70 AD are actually communicating their trust and faith in Christ. And here's how that works. So Jesus said it. So a, just in doing what Jesus said, it's, it's very crucial. But these people had a choice. Jerusalem was seen as this, like, city of God, so to speak. And his temple was seen as almost this incarnation of his presence. And so people had a choice. They had to decide, is, are Jesus' words more trustworthy? Or is my idea that God must preserve Jerusalem, that God must preserve his temple, more trustworthy? As the, as the people of God, as, 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 sorry, as Rome surrounds Jerusalem in 70 AD, the people of God have a choice. Do I trust more in what Jesus said, or do I trust more in this idea that somehow God will preserve the temple? The instructions are counterintuitive for these people. 
when wars happen in a walled city, the, the, generally you're supposed to run toward the city, not away from it. But Jesus makes it clear, you're, I want you to run away from the city, away from the security of those walls. And here's why. Because Jesus knew that Jerusalem wasn't going to be preserved. It was going to be trampled under the feet of the Gentiles. And we know from the testimony of the Jewish historian Josephus that that's exactly what happened. When Rome surrounded the city, people who fled survived, and people who didn't died or were taken off into slavery. In this case, Jesus said to run, and in running, the people of God were actually displaying their faith in Jesus and his word. Which brings us to our second lesson from the text. The first one is don't fear because I know who the king is and the king conquered death. The second one is put your trust in Jesus and his word. It's a firm foundation, not in anything else that the world has to offer, only in Jesus and his word. As we face various things happening in our world even today, we're tempted to place our faith in things other than Jesus. Money, uh, politicians, uh, our homes, X, Y, you know, whatever. Let us not be those people. For lack of a better phrase, I believe we will be put to shame if we do that. You know, one of my favorite sections of this passage, and the final one we're going to be looking at today, is verses 12 through 18. In this passage, Jesus says that as a result of the increased persecution, you're going to be put in front of kings and governors, and this is going to be your opportunity to testify, and that you don't need to fear about what you're going to say because he's going to give you the words in the moment. And that's ultimately, I believe, our third response to these things happening around us. Number one, uh, don't fear because you know the king. Number two, put your trust in Jesus and his word. Number three, be living a life on purpose for Jesus. Preach the gospel, help the poor, be ministers of God's love to the world. That said, our response to persecution and arrest must not be to grow quiet and dim, but to continue to preach the gospel fervently, to continue to live lives as Jesus lived and do the things that he did. Look at Jesus' final warning in verse 34. Watch out! Don't let your hearts be dulled by carousing and drunkenness and by worries of this life. Don't let that day catch you unaware like a trap, for that day will come upon everyone living on the earth. Keep alert at all times. Not just in the final days, but in the days leading up to the final days, we are to be awake and aware. We can't allow ourselves to become these complacent pe people. Oh, I'll, I'll obey Jesus later. I'll do what he told me to do later. I'll preach the gospel later. He's coming like a thief, he's coming like a thief in the night. There might not be a later. You know, I regularly encounter brothers and sisters in Christ who are very passionate about the end of days. They have tons of knowledge, done hours and hours of research. They keep track of world events through this lens of, of end times prophecy. They're passionate about it. They devote lots of time and energy to it. And I don't have any problem with that at all. What I do have a problem with is that, unfortunately, many of these same people, more often than not, sadly in my experience at least, I see these same passionate people not doing the very things that Jesus taught us to do in response to the end of days. For example, I, I frequently see a bunker mentality. Like 
when these people when these people see these things happen they begin to withdraw from the world they begin to think how can i survive away from the world i hope that in what we're discussing here it's become clear that this is not what jesus wants he's he's calling us to all the more we should be already but all the more go out and preach the gospel to take advantage of every opportunity to to not w withdraw from the world, but to, to be ministers to it in the midst of this horrible, deadly stuff that's going to be happening. The other thing that I see is these people, and these people are passionate about the end of days. They're passionate about the end of days, but they're not passionate about sharing the gospel. I, I know that for years, Larry, uh, for the years that Larry was here, we had many people, or not many, but some people show up and then subsequently leave because they felt like we didn't preach about the mess the end of days message enough. Meanwhile, those exact same people were not obeying Jesus in the slightest and sharing the message of Jesus with others. Let that not be true of us. If any one of us is going to be passionate about the end of days, let let us not be passionate about the knowledge, but also the practice. Let us do the things that Jesus told us that we're supposed to be doing. He is coming again. There's no doubt about it. The question is, when he gets here, will he find us firmly rooted in him, confident of his word, and proclaiming the gospel to the nations? Standing on him as our firm foundation, and therefore able to do the work that he called us to do. As we conclude today, I, I leave you with these final words out of the gospel of Luke. Jesus says them. Be dressed for service and keep your lamps burning as though you were waiting for your master to return from the wedding feast. Then you will be ready to open the door and let him in the moment he arrives and knocks. The servants who are ready and waiting for him, uh, the servants who are ready and waiting for his return will be rewarded. I tell you the truth. He himself will seat them, put on an apron and serve them as they sit and eat. He may come in the middle of the night or just before dawn, but, whatever, but whenever he comes, he will reward the servants who are ready. Understand this. If a homeowner knew exactly when the burglar was coming, he would not permit the burglar, his house to be broken into. You must be ready all the time, for the Son of Man will come when least expected. Then Peter asked, Lord, is that illustration just for us or for everyone? And the Lord replied, a faithful, sensible servant is one to whom the master can give the responsibility of managing his other household servants and feeding them. If the master returns and finds the servants has not the servant has not done a good job, or sorry, if the master returns and finds the servant has done a good job, there will be a reward. I tell you the truth, the master will put that servant in charge of all he owns. But what if the servant thinks my master won't be back for a while and he begins beating the other servants, partying and getting drunk? The master will return unannounced and unexpected and he will cut that servant in pieces and banish him with the unfaithful. May we be the faithful, eagerly waiting servant, ready for the return of our master, doing the work he left us here to do. When he returns, let him find us responsibly doing the work he left us here to do, not hiding in fear, not running to the hills, but serving, caring for, and proclaiming
the message to those around us. Anyway, uh, let's conclude with a word of prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you that you're you. We praise you. We give you glory. And Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us and embolden us with confidence because you are our foundation. There's no reason to fear. Even when the world is crumbling around us, you are our foundation. We proclaim it. Lord, you're good. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a good day, Grace.